The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Uh, joining me this morning is novelist and newspaper columnist Pia De Jong. Her, her new book is Saving Charlotte, A Mother and the Power of Intuition. In her vivid memoir, Saving Charlotte, novelist Pia De Jong chronicles the unspeakable reality of grappling with the illness of her newborn daughter diagnosed with congenital myeloid leukemia. With scanned information on how this cancer affects infants, choosing not to pursue chemotherapy, Yong waits, watches documenting her every sense, thought, and experience as Charlotte's illness and recovery unfold. She's an award-winning novelist and poet and contributes to the Washington Post, HuffPost, and is a former columnist for the Dutch Financial Times. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Pia. Good morning, Catherine. Great to be on your show. Well, let's, you know, you, as I just read in your introduction or your short bio, um, you receive news, the the worst kind of news, obviously, that any parent could ever want to receive. So uh, can we just go back to that? What happened? When did it happen? And what was your immediate response? Your daughter has leukemia. Right. Yeah. So uh, we have to go back to the year 2000 when uh, my baby was born in, in Amsterdam in our really nice canal house and had two boys of like four and two, not even that. And everything looked like picture perfect and it was an easy birth. And then the midwife, um, you know, looked at her and did her the APCAR score to, to measure if everything was okay. And she said, like, she's fine except for like a teeny tiny blue spot on her back. And if she pressed, if she pressed on it, it turned blue. And immediately... I was thinking, like, this is not a good thing. This is this is wrong. Something is completely wrong with her. And, of course, everybody said, like, it will be fine. It's just something, you know, little, little babies have always something. But then we had to go to the hospital, and they did a biopsy. And, and then when she was two weeks old, we got the diagnosis that it was, as you just said, like myeloid leukemia, which is actually the worst form of leukemia and, and the least, um, you know, with the least hope of any recovery. So that was the reality. So my husband, Robert, and I were sitting there in this, in this doctor's office thinking, oh my gosh, what's, this is the most, like you said, it's unspeakable. You, don't, you never expect it. You expect, I don't know, it was just really horrible. And it was like, if you, if you asked, what was it? How did it feel? It really was like you were in, in, a, in, a, in a supermarket and you make an, 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 you know, a collision with your cart with all the groceries and they just all go up in the air and they, you know, tomatoes and the, and the eggs and the bread and it just kind of in slow motion and then it just kind of falls down on the floor making an enormous mess. That was how it felt. So your whole reality just changes and I'm thinking like you already had two, you had two boys, two and four, yeah. so the expectation 
expectation too, I would imagine as a parent is, well, everything's going to be fine. I mean, just yeah. I mean, as you say, you have a full-term baby, uh, there's nothing, right. and, and there was nothing in your pregnancy that would have, no. you know, given you any kind of indication that maybe there was something wrong or that, no, you know. No, nothing. And, and, and to be, uh, you know, to be honest, there was, we had this, we were this happy-go-lucky couple. I mean, Till then, I only had like a, a broken arm, but we were, that was the only thing that happened in my life, I think. We were really happy-go-lucky people, and, um, and, and of course, you always think that something could happen, but it just never it was all, all good, good things. No, I had a, a really lovely pregnancy, very good pregnancy, happy, no sickness, nothing. So <laughs> then you're completely unprepared for that reality. So where do they think that this kind of, I mean, this is cancer, this is, as you say, the worst, a very... It can be virulent, I guess, in in infants as well as adults. Is yes. it congenital? How does this happen in utero? I mean, do they explain that, or do they not even have an explanation for it? No, they don't have an explanation. And and still, um, I mean, actually, we gave this summer. We, my husband and myself and Charlotte, uh, we gave blood because people are still interesting, uh, interested in how is this possible? How can this happen? There's there's you know maybe something between my husband and me and the way the way we. You know, we mingle uh, blood-wise, yeah, yeah genetic-wise. I don't know. There, I know when, when a baby is born, blood is made in the bone marrow. And before that, blood is made in another organ. I think, I don't know, the liver. And I think she made a mistake when she was in my womb. And she started doing it right when she was born. And I think the whole year when she was kind of sick, uh, she was fighting, you know, the the bad decision that she kind of made when she was her blood mate when she was in my womb. Now, with Charlotte, when she was born, was she, I mean, aside from that little blue mark on her back, uh, what did she, in terms of how she looked, how she behaved, you know, as an infant, in, at least in the first couple of weeks before you got the diagnosis, normal or? Well, she was, she was kind of, she was, she was two weeks uh, more than full term. But she was tiny, and that was kind of a little bit worrisome because my, my other children were, you know, robust, robust babies, and she wasn't. And she looked kind of tired, like, leave me, you know, leave me in the dark. And, and that was something I really noticed, and, and I worried about that. And that's something, like, my husband said uh, when she was born. I said, like, she's so vulnerable. And then he said, like, she's strong. And she saw, you saw her strength in spite of, you know, that she looked so vulnerable. So, and I think that was really the way it was. Yeah, I think well, mothers have a sense too and especially if you've had two babies already, you kind yes. of get a feel and maybe you can't define it but there's something not quite right which is kind of what you're saying. Yeah. So, yeah, so so then you get this diagnosis, your baby has leukemia, cancer and, you know, like you said, the shopping cart just explodes and everything goes to the floor. Then what? Yeah, then what? Yeah, so then... Uh, that's something else. And suddenly you are in this whole, the whole medical circuit. You are like in a hospital and you get like a special room where most kids are who are actually going to die. And everything is suddenly, you're surrounded by doctors and nurses. And that was a very, well, not only new for me, but very uncomfortable and also very, very stressful for Charlotte who preferred to, you know, to be very quiet and in the dark. And, uh, and, and there were more tests were done. And then we were actually sitting in the doctor's office where we were discussing the treatment plan. What are we going to do? And he told us that morning 
that the only thing actually they can do is at that time, I know things have changed, I think, but at that time it was like chemotherapy. That's the only known way of treating a baby. And at the same time, he said it's a very, very dangerous option. I mean, babies can die from just the chemotherapy or they can become blind or infertile. And it was just a certain way to go. And instantly, that's another part of my intuition, I think I just felt this is not the way you want to go with this this baby. And uh, so what happened is that I just, and I think that's the, the intuition part, and I think that's the part that changed my whole life and also the life of my daughter and her fate, is I just stood up and I put her in my sling and I started preparing to leave that office. And the doctor said, like, what are you doing? And he said, like, I'm, I'm leaving, I'm going home. And he said, like, why? We're discussing the treatment plan. I said, like, because I go. I was so deep inside me that I didn't want to go in this whole medical area and treating her with this, you know, horrible medicine. And I, I could make that decision. And, and because I, I mean, they told her, they told us that she was, she was without much chance anyway. <clears throat> so that's how it happened. And my husband followed me. Robert says like he agreed. And then the, the doctor made us, oncologist made a very good decision. He supported us. He said like, if this is what you want to do, I'm going to support you. And I said, I just want to be home with her and her brothers. And if she needs to die there, she's going to die at home. And he said that he would help us, you know, prepare for that. And so that's how it came about. That's the, that was the reality when our baby was two weeks old. Well, you had the intuition and you had the guts, I guess, to stand up and say, I'm not going to do this. But, you know, I'm just thinking about it like, the the doctor and or the hospital or both or the medical team, they didn't, you know, say, well, you know, you're, you can't do this. There's no science based on this. Or were they actually saying, even if we do chemotherapy, her chances of living are not good. So it was not necessarily, you know what I mean? Like the choices wasn't a great choice to begin well, with. The, or, the thing is this, he, they expect, uh, most parents want to do everything. So they expected us to, you know, to want to try every possibility, even chemotherapy. And he showed us articles with babies who had this congenital myeloid leukemia. And actually almost all of them died. And, and most of them after, you know, several periods where they were like having chemotherapy and they kind of recovered and then it came back. So there was, there was this, it was a real option. And I kind of sensed, and he said it like later, that they were, they were surprised and also a little bit relieved that we made that decision. They didn't force us to, you know, he said they were kind of reassuring. To, you know, they said, let's wait and see thinking like maybe, you know, they will, they will change their mind when things will happen with her. But I, we never came back to the decision, and I never regretted that I made that decision. It was just felt completely in sync with what my daughter needed. Okay, and so you knew that, you realized, I mean, as you say, intuitive, just, just it was something that you knew you had to do, and then you took her home. Um, and then what, I mean, did you second guess? I'm, I'm thinking of it. As a mother, like, did I do the right thing? As time went on, I, you know, because obviously uh, there was a lot of time that went by. And as you began to what you documented everything, you began writing down your thoughts, your feelings. Did you ever doubt yourself? Well, yeah, that came. The, the writing, the writing came a little bit later. But 
so, so the thing was that I decided, we decided not to treat her. And, and, and that, that wasn't like doing nothing. I made a huge job out of being there for her and helping her with whatever I could do and making her comfortable. So I quit my job. I stayed home. I put her in a sling. I fed her whenever she needed to be fed. I was just everything she needed. And especially I kept her without stress. Because I knew, I, I knew from uh, I, I, what I, my, you know, my studies that stress was like a bad thing for a baby. And also for me, so in order to keep her out of a, st- a stressful situation and getting her nervous, I needed to be calm. So that I made a, had a big job and a big task to do to make her feel comfortable. And I never regretted the decision. I always felt this girl is fighting and whatever way it goes, I'm there for her. And by the way, she got more tumors. It, the blue spot turned out to be tumors. She, was, she, she started getting more. So she was all over. And that was, uh, that was something I really you know, took a lot of care about. And looked, I looked at the little spots because they moved space and they disappeared. And they came, you know, they came more. And some, it was just a whole landscape of you know, constantly looking at her, her little teeny tiny body, what was going on there trying to, to look inside and see what her blood was doing. And at the, were you also at the same time, I mean, in terms of looking up the side, how many, I guess one of the questions is like, how many kids, how many babies are born with this, uh, uh, this type of leukemia? Yeah, well, luckily it's very rare, especially, you know, as a congenital condition. So it, it's rare, it's unusual. I think the doctors in, in AMC, the Amsterdam Medical Center, which is a huge you know, very reliable, good hospital. They had never seen it. And actually there was a, a case in, in, I think, Harvard Medical Center. I think they sent also a, this, the sample of the biopsy to, to them for, you know, a, a second um, opinion. And so it's, it's very, very rare. So, that, so to reassure, you know, people who are listening. And also, that's something I want to stress. This is something I did. I don't recommend this to anybody else. This was just my total gut experience. And I still, if you said, like, I had the guts, I don't know where that power and that gut came from. It just came over me. And I'm very grateful it did. Well, uh, that's who you are, obviously. Sorry? You know, that's just the kind, you know, yeah, that's who you are. And that's what your relationship that's who with I am. your daughter. That's what I, yeah, yeah, that's who you Well. I'll tell you something. It's it's um it's diff- more difficult to stand up for yourself because you always think like, oh, I can handle things. But when you have a baby, who's you know my baby, and she couldn't speak for herself, and she was so vulnerable, then you know something happened to me. Like, I have to protect her. I have to fight for her, and I have to know what she needed. And I really was. That's why I was having her in my sling and paying so much attention to her. Because I really wanted to be her translator and not making a mistake. Yeah, when you say not making a mistake, I'm thinking about, I remember one of my sons needed eye surgery. And I remember thinking that, you know, if it were, if it were just I, I, that's, I could, and I made a mistake. Okay, that's, it's, I'm just, I'm the only one who's going to suffer. But now I'm responsible for this baby. Should he have the surgery? Should he not have the surgery? And if yeah. he does and something goes wrong... It's my responsibility, and that's that's different than it's than totally when it's different. yeah, 
Yeah, and that's why I'm I'm so happy actually that the people at the uh, at you know the, the oncologists and the whole team they were on our side, and that was such a good thing. I, I compared it to like it's a golden braid. It's the child. It was me and and Robert, and then the the the, the physicians, and we should all work together. But the parent is the kind of the CEO of the whole, you know, the the the, the sick child. Uh, disease yeah. thing because they know best and also as you said with your child you have to live with the consequences not the doctors it's just in the end it will it will be your it should be your decision I think I really believe that yeah. now yeah. go ahead well I was going to say well how first of all kind of a time frame for this how old is Charlotte now uh, how old is Charlotte now Charlotte uh, just turned 17 getting her driver's license and, and a perfectly happy child. Yeah. So, so she 17, kind of made it. She did make it. Yeah. <laughs> she definitely made it. Um, now you have a whole other set of problems because she's driving, but we won't go into that. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So back to when she was an infant and you say like then the tumors started there's there were more tumors and you know here, so at what point like how long did that last and at what point like was did you see maybe improve or you thought there was improvement or there was improvement yeah so there was so first of all there were the tumors who started um, disappearing after i think half a year from her from her back uh, so that a very important first one which was the biggest started to kind of disappear then uh, and then for like a long time, till she was a year old, she had like this huge tumors on the the bottom of her feet, and they were they were the last. But but the other ones were slowly disappearing. And also, I noticed that she became more lively. She became she wanted to play. She uh, was looking around when her you know her brothers they tried to make her laugh all the time, doing their little dance around her. And in the beginning, it just made her tired. Tired and and then she started to she wanted to to play with them and be part of that. So she changed. She became livelier, happier, uh, a different baby. She tried to sit up. She tried to roll up, and she kind of caught up also because she was a little bit slow with things. She caught up with her development, and that of course made me very hopeful that this would you know proceed. Something happened, though. In in the beginning, we were just waiting for her to die and also, in a sad way, preparing for her to die. There was no way I was believing that, you know, she would make it. I was just preparing for her to die and, you know, terrible things like buying a grave and preparing the speech for the funeral. I was busy with that. And after a while, something changed in me. And I thought, like, well, maybe, maybe she's better if I really get all this positive energy and, 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 and send her hope that she can maybe make it. Yeah. And well, also, maybe, we found... Yeah. Sorry. No, go ahead. Yeah, and also, uh, that's also in my book, we found on the internet about a story about a little boy of eight years old who also had... Um, and he lived in America, and his parents were very, very poor, and he didn't have health care. And he didn't see a doctor till he broke his arm when he was eight years old. And then everybody was like, oh... This was the child that was supposed to die. And we found that story on the Internet. I've never been able to refound it, refine it. Uh, and his grandmother posted that story. And this was such a big thing for Robert and me. It was like, oh, if, if this boy wasn't treated and he survived, this could happen to Charlotte. 
he became so important for me, even if, of course, I didn't know him. I'm always trying to find him, but I don't, I don't know, you know, I don't even his name. I call him Sammy in my book. But that was our hope. So hope wasn't a thing with Fedor. Hope was a boy far away in America who had survived the same thing without treatment. Maybe somebody will hear on the yeah. show today, and and that would be wonderful. Yeah. I mean, even yeah. Charlotte is like, oh, I want to, you know, I want to meet that boy. He must be like twenty-one now, I think, and and the boy who who gave who gave so much hope, and and but it was one situation only, but she but was, also made it. Yeah, yeah, but it's something that whatever reason that you that inspired you that gave you the inspiration but now you mentioned charlotte 17 so what does she think of all of this i mean this is her obviously this is her story too yes it's her story too and uh and of course she always knew that she was special and she kind of embraced it it's part of who she is and i always taught her to be very careful with when she's tired to take rest and not go over her limits all those things that you know, I never did. I was always like, you know, being strong and uh, that she should really take care of herself. So she knows that if she's tired, she should go to sleep and uh, listen to who she is. So she likes, she, and I think she, she's happy with, you know, makes her a little bit special. And I think she likes that there's a book about her and she's happy about it. And also she always thought that you know, she knew she had like these tumors over her body and she always thought like this is something, you know, that's dirty or disgusting. And the way I describe them in my book is that they're like beautiful. They remind me of little lakes and uh, they had a story in them. And so she was like, she's, she embraces now, I think, the story about herself of a, of a time in her life when she wasn't aware this was all happening. What about her relationship with her brothers? Because I know sometimes when you have, and Charlotte is obviously special, and, and you've kind of you've said that, but, uh, you know, and then you have the two, two older brothers. Did they ever or feel left out? Or I mean, because there is an impact on the family when you have one person, yes. or especially a child, who's sick, and the other two sometimes feel like they're not getting the attention they need. And, and that's always an issue in yeah, it's a and, big and issue. Most of the and, time, it's an issue. With, yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's uh, and and even though as a, I think every mother tries to <laughs> avoid them, you know, being jealous of the other, somehow they always are. <laughs> and uh, it, 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 at times, especially Matthias, the one you know, a little bit older than Charlotte, he is always saying like, "Oh, you spoil her so much." And I think he <laughs> he must have felt a little bit <laughs> left out when she was a baby. Although I didn't, you know, I tried to make up for that. But yeah. And um, there, there's always, yeah, you try to do it right and you never do. But, uh, yeah, the thing is, though, that we became much, much, much more closer as a family through this whole experience. And that really, I mean, when, when she was a baby, we had this whole cocoon and I compare it with Matrushka dolls. We, you know, started in the middle and then the boys and I and Robert Moore doing the outside world and... And so when we, we, at a certain point when, in 2012, so Charlotte was 12, we moved to the United States. And it was really helpful that we were such a close family because that's a big change for like teenagers to, um, you know, to leave everything behind and go to a whole new set of friends and schools. So it helped that we were, you know, very close as a family. We still are. And the other thing is you mentioned earlier in the interview, you were saying like, I mean, you are a close family, but that uh, the importance of providing 
it can't be a stress-free environment, but as much of a stress-free environment as you can when you have a, a like for Charlotte, a sick baby or anybody actually in the family who's sick and that you really really had an awareness of that and also that you needed to feel as stress-free as you could. And did I, re- and just, yeah, and I, that you lived next door to a uh, a brothel in Amsterdam? Yes, Was that? Did. Yeah, did. So you, yes. yeah, you, let's talk about that. We don't have that much time left, but you got a lot of support from the ladies at the brothel. Yes, oh. that was so interesting because when I was, I just said like, I, I, I lived in a, in a cocoon and all the, uh, the, the kind of the official people we knew and the, 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 the Statuesque uh, Canal where we lived and all the, my husband is a professor, so we had all this, this, this kind of things to go and I didn't go to any of these things anymore and I just, I just connected to the people in the street and I happened to be like this brother with this very young hooker <laughs> who you know, who started to pray for Charlotte, and she started to making, you know, knitting her a little, you know, socks and a hat, and she was very, very, just praying for her, even though she wasn't religious, she, she connected with her, and there was this, you know, the, the, the man who took care of the playground, and he was, uh, you know, he was kind of an alcoholic, and, but he was so sweet, and we become such good friends, and I think when you're in a situation where everything is different, and that you connect in a, you connected, I did at least, connect with different people and you appreciate much more people who are very much more closer to their intuition and grateful and people don't have everything and not the happy-go-lucky people. And it was, yeah, that was a very, you know, situation where I, I learned so much from that. Well, I think one of the things is you're open to all of that. I guess if, the, you know, we have like a few minutes left, about three minutes yeah. left, but... You do have to be open to where the support comes from. Because like you said, you know, you hear you from people that it wasn't that you went to a traditional support group or all the kinds of things that one would expect where you would get support for this kind of thing. Here you get a story of a young boy who suffered from the same thing. And then you have, you know, your lady, the prostitute next door who becomes your biggest support. And and, but you have to be open to that. I think if a lesson is one of the lessons in the book that I mean. Yeah, in order to to get that support. I completely agree. I think that was the beauty that there's, I mean, that's correct. I didn't go to any support group. The the psychologist, the psychiatrist, I I paid them a visit. It didn't work for me at that time. But the little things, the little gems they did for me, like the praying of the hooker and, you know, little things. My, my, yeah, even my four-year-old at some point said, like, she's not going to die, mama. And I thought, like, oh, he knows. Yes, it's... They're so much closer to their intuition, but yeah, you have to be open. And I think at that point in my life, you know, had just just giving birth, being in such a vulnerable phase in my life, you know, as you said, you know, the unspeakable happened. I was I was open. I was looking for it. I mean, even saying this, it gives me this goosebumps. <laughs> yeah, I hope I I will never lose that, the little gems that life throws. Well, yeah, you are very. You're inspiring. What can I say? And so is the book. So we have two minutes left. So yeah. let's talk okay. about the book. And we, well, I mean, we have to. The title of the book, "Saving Charlotte: A Mother and the Power of Intuition." You can buy the books. Buy it online, bookstores everywhere. Um, can you give us? Yeah, give us a, a website that we can go to that talks more about the book and maybe more about you. Yeah. So the website is piadejong.com. So that's my name, P. I-A-D-E-J-O-N-G dot com. And yeah, and there's also like little stories, as you said, for the newspaper. I still write them every week about my life in the United States 
for the Dutch, and they most of them are translated. So there, I think they're, they're a nice read um, <laughs> about like life in America, and it's also pictures about Charlotte and and more inspiring stories. So please yeah. check it out if you want. Yeah, check and it the out. Book is not a, yeah, the book is not a sad book. It's it's also there are also like you know funny stories, right? You agree with that, Catherine? Yeah, yes, not a sad yeah. book and a happy, a very happy ending. And there's just lots of emotions and a lot of good stuff just packed into this one little book. Um, yeah. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Oh, thank you, Catherine, for having me on. It was really a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Aliens with Gas is the program you're listening to. We are the Extraterrestrial Rock Show, airing every Saturday afternoon on the VoiceAmerica.com Variety Channel. And we're going to play the rest of the Uli John Roth interview on our overtime. And I dig that because you're doing the, the Brady Bunch thing, aren't you? I am. Because <laughs> I have a, a theremin app right. on my phone. So it's not, you know, a real theremin. If anybody knows the Brady Bunch, what I'm talking about. UFO! It's back! <laughs> Thank you, and keep watching the skies. That's every Saturday right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. News. Opinion. Can you hear me? Hear me. Your voice counts. Call toll free 1 866 472 5787. 1 866 472 5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Uh, joining me this morning is Stormy Simon. She's the former president of Overstock.com. And today we're going to be, the topic today is how women are heavily influencing the, the cannabis industry and what the future holds for women in this business. So the topic is women in the cannabis industry. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Stormy. Thank you so much for having me. 
okay, the cannabis industry, new industry, uh, not just for women, obviously, it's a new industry uh, just in general. Uh, so I guess the first question is, I mean, you're a businesswoman, former very successful businesswoman, took a company and and uh, turned it around, uh, and now you are have decided to get into the cannabis industry. I guess the question, why? <laughs> Right. <laughs> well, I had been with Overstock, you know, I joined it very early on in 2001. They were founded in 1999. And I spent 15 years there. I started as a temp. And then over the course of 12 years became president. So it was an epic ride, <clears throat> excuse me, in an unbelievable in- industry as it was being developed. So I had never placed an order online. There were two people in, eBay, Amazon, and Overstock came in with its own piece of the pie and business model, which truly was Overstocked Inventory. Well, as the industry of retail evolved, which was millions of people adopting shopping online and really figuring out how to move big items across the United States, we were the first to ship big furniture and rugs and couches. And so we really developed something that didn't exist. And I loved it. You know, about three weeks, uh, three months in, I made my first order online and I was over the moon to get it and how exciting. It was a hell of a deal. And I knew that I was a part of something big. As time goes by, you know, 15 years is a long time. I'm an empty nester now and a lot of the pressure of being a single mom and supporting the boys is off my shoulders and huge victory in itself. And I really just felt like something new. You know, I think you reach a point in your life that, you know, you get to shake it up just for you. And it was a personal decision. I absolutely love Overstock. So proud of what we did there. I joined when it was $18 million. I left when it was $1.8, almost $1.9 billion. Uh, and, and the cannabis industry was appealing to me in that same regard of having something that doesn't exist not regulated, you know, there's so much unknown within it that I found that exciting and I knew it was a part of our history, you know, the American history that will be talked about for years to come. So uh, I am a believer in the plant medicinally. I also believe in the civil right to use the plant if one would choose. Uh, uh, But the medicinal properties of this plant is far more, it's stronger than anything else about it. Uh, So you believe in the product. Yeah, I was just going to say, because you you believe in the product, so which obviously I think is important. You have to do that or have a passion about what you're you're doing. But I want to kind of get back to the thing, because what you've done about empowering women as entrepreneurs in business or just empowering women in business or in big business, which is what you did when you were at Overstock.com. And it seems to me, just as I've been reading, that, the cannabis business, because it's new, seems to be open to having women join as in a maybe a different way. Because for for whatever reason, I'm not sure, but uh, that uh, welcoming that this business is welcoming to women, for, and um, there's real opportunities for women because women really still haven't done that well in terms of being, you know, the CEOs of companies or the head of companies or even executive directors. So this may be different. Well, sure. Yeah, the the playing field, for whatever reason, isn't equal in our gender and business. 
And, you know, that could be a, a number of reasons when you go back through the decades and see how we've evolved as a society. In this particular industry, you know, and, and there's been a few studies done that we can, uh, or surveys done that we can talk about, but they're pioneers. These women are pioneers. They're pioneering medicine and science and distribution of something uh, that hasn't been done before legally. So, you know, these women that really lead it are believing in the uh, medicinal properties. They're spreading the word. <clears throat> and those are the those are the pioneers, the ones that started forcing the issue. And from the plant comes all these ancillary businesses, you know, uh, not only just the conventions that you can go to, but the products that support the plant, the different ways to consume the plant. You no longer have to, to smoke the flower. You can eat the concentrate. Or there's so many things being discovered now that the government is allowing scientists to discover them. I think women We're talking about the legality. I just want to, can we clarify kind of the legalities of it? Like certain states, medicinal... Uh, use of the plant of of cannabis is 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 legal. What are the federal? I guess what I'm saying is, what are the federal regulations? How are they different from the states? And which states are they different from in terms of the legalities, medicinal, recreational? Yeah. yeah. So federally, uh, there's a law in place, and I think it may be the Cole referendum that states that. The government cannot use funds to go investigate companies who are operating, you know, within the state of Colorado, legal states. So they can't go and, and, and start investigating someone. Uh, that'll be done on the state's level to make sure that the businesses are held to the standards of the state. You know, federally, there are no regulations. It's not federally legal. You know, it's, it's not nationwide. It's a state of the state laws. So 50 states, there can be 50 different laws, 50 different ways that they decide to support the plant. Um, the good news is, is people are collaborative and the states are collaborative too, so hopefully we get some common threads. Um, you know, it, it's so interesting. When I decided to, you know, jump into this industry, I had told some business friends that I thought were, would be supportive of it. But it was very interesting. These were very good friends of mine. And they said, oh, my gosh, it's illegal. I could never do that. I have children in high school. And I was surprised at, the, you know, at their point of view, only because we've made so much progress in the past, thanks to Colorado, California, Oregon, Washington, so much progress in learning about the plant and its properties. Uh, to date, federally, there's maybe five, three to five hemp licenses um, that are given, awarded by the government. There's been one university that's been allowed to grow the flower for scientific studies in 2016, which has been very restrictive on the product. You know, there's a lot of scientists out there that would love to discover more about the plant, but it's been a restricted, you can't get it. The government has opened up, as of, I think it was April of 2016, the ability for other universities to participate in growing the plant for scientific research. That's a big deal. That means in the next few years, 
we will be inundated with information about this plant. It's very com- it's a complicated plant. It's complex, but it lines up with our system, our bodies, pretty well. And it's worth discovering. And I think going back to women, you know, it's the right to try. It's the right, you know, I, I heard a portion of your last interview and, and, you know, living a life where chemo is one of your decisions. You know, I think you'd like to have a little more tools in your belt. You know, if, if cannabis works for some people, they should have the right to try it. should not be dictated. You know, chemo can be poisonous, also very helpful. And using cannabis is not forgoing all the Western medicine. It's enhancing it when it works for people. You know, it doesn't well, work I think for that everyone, is so well said. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I'm stopping you because I think that's so well said, but I think that some that it's not said that way all the time. You talk about information. That's really information and and you talk about this, but an awareness and education. And we don't have enough of that. And, you know, we, we haven't been able to get enough of that information because people still have their their misconceptions about weed and like, you know, it's the hippies in the, in the 60s and in the 70s. And uh, it's, it's, it's a whole political, obviously, perspective that, that, that doesn't really have anything to do with the science. And I think that that's really important, this education and awareness, so that we can go on and have the option. Um, Look, the yeah. history of cannabis is so peppered with uh, discrimination and money, big money, that, you know, you think back in the day, the day being like the 30s, Rockefeller, Rockefeller had so many newspapers and investment in lumber. And here comes hemp, this alternative, a more, you know, they call it weed because it grows like a weed. You know, we can, we can get this hemp and create all sorts of things for less money than we're doing today. But if you read about the history of cannabis, how this plant was a medicine for all of us. And, you know, in the 30s, we turned it around uh, because we had a lot of immigrants from Mexico who had come and brought what was their medicine at the time, calling it marijuana. And it came over to the States and it, it's peppered with discrimination and suppression on some groups and, you know, elevation and money on others. And, you know, that's where the education has to, has to start is you have to understand the, the cycle of this plant and what it's actually been through and the reasons why they're all money and personal gain, you know, by, so it, by, uh, I, I will say it, by a lot of, you know, wealthy white guys. Is what it was, well, <laughs> and we started imprisoning. Well, well said. Yeah, we started imprisoning. You know, putting uh, good people who were healing people a few weeks before the tax act was passed, and and you know Mexicans, and putting them in jail because you know where they were from, where they came from, this was accepted. Uh, and then reefer madness came out, and everybody thought it was crazy. But there's a history there that's worth telling. And once you can understand the reasons why this plant was moved to a Schedule One drug, you kind of get over it. It's full of bureaucracy, <laughs> excuse me, and government. Yeah, and I, that is so. And I go. 
Yeah, that that's that that really is critical. I mean, I can give you example, personal examples of friends, particularly one who died of breast cancer, and her. This was quite a few, you know, at least twenty five years ago, and and uh, in New York City, and her doctor prescribed, and I think he was doing it. I guess he got the medication illegally, uh, uh, marijuana for pain, and that was the only thing that relieved her pain at the end, uh, or it was quite a few months, actually. And, um, but, you know, this all had to be sort of done in the shadows because there was, you know, yeah, it wasn't legal. Yeah, and how legal. beautiful is it that we can find pain relief from a plant? You know, this is a plant that grows from the ground, just like a cucumber, you know, like a strawberry. And if we can find relief from a plant, that sounds way better than anything Pfizer's going to whip up (laughs) (laughs) and and test for billions and billions of dollars. (laughs) You know, it just seems like we may have some answers at our fingertips and uh, we, you know, restrict, restrict a plant. It, It seems crazy to me. So how long do you think the process is going to take? Because it's it started, right? This is a great, actually, this is a great business for women because we've been discriminated against. So we're, we can really get on the bandwagon for this. But, uh, and, and a lot, I think you you just said a few minutes ago, I mean, a lot of drugs and a lot of medication are related to big pharma and it's all about the money and not necessarily about the patient and, and the options that they should have. So, and marijuana fits into this category. But, well, um, and a few yeah. weeks ago, I saw this, I, it was crazy, I think I saw it on Facebook, but a article that said, we've now de- we're developing a synthetic THC, a synthetic THC, even though it's growing right outside, <laughs> we're going to develop something synthetic. It doesn't make sense, and people have to take a stand against that. It really is our body. You know, the way the healthcare system is going, and we are able to make choices and we are penalized if we don't have our health care. You know, if that's the way the world's going to work, then I'm going to fight really hard for how I choose my health care and the things I want to use as medicine. If they're going to put well, the restrictions on so much of my life, I'd like to make some decisions on my, on my health I mean, I would agree with you, but that's so hard to do. I mean, they're going to make, I mean, this is what I, you, uh, you think about it. Are they going to, they're going to make a synthetic, make it some marijuana a synthetic, and then you can sell, you know, billions of pills and you're going to make a lot more, more money. And and how do like small, let's say, you know, how do you compete with these big companies? Well, it's been con- competing against them in the black market for decades. You know, the, the, it's my belief that folks who use the plant actually do get some sort of medicinal relief from it. Otherwise, they wouldn't use the plant. Now, I know many people who use the plant and many people who don't. And for different reasons. They, it works for some. It doesn't work for others. Um, so it's been a competition for a long time. I think the, the fight at the top, we have got lobby, the way the whole, our whole country is set up, very hierarchical in, in the um, pyramid structure, right? We've got the president, and then we've got his administration, and then by the time you get to us, we're at the bottom of the pyramid, hoping that our choices are heard at the top of the pyramid. They're very scary right now, and people are, 
you know, very fearful in this industry of Sessions and Trump and what they might do. And whenever I think about that, I think about the power of the people and, and the folks that I know that are fighting this fight. And they're much stronger than those few guys at the top of the pyramid. And Who are some moment, of those guys? Well, who are some of those people? Because as you say, there are some. And I, uh, like, there, isn't there a women's group in, in Denver, uh, Colorado? That Yeah, you know, there's a few women's group at, groups that spring up locally and they gather together and share their insights and what they're doing. Um, you know, it's kind of a support group, but really you're so entrepreneurial in these states that you really need a tribe that you can stumble through with because once a, reg- a tra- uh, change in the way something's packaged or the way it works in a state, it affects everyone there. Um, but those are the people. You know, I think of Tracy Ryan with Canna Kids. I work with her. I'm on her board. She's in Los Angeles. Her daughter's been ill since she was eight months old. She's now almost five using combination medicine. And cannabis has been wildly successful in her journey. So uh, Canna Kids, where you, you go online and do with cannakids.com? Is that, is that what it would be? Yes. Yep, and it's it's a it is a THC and CBD brand. THC is the only part of the plant that will alter your mental state. You know, the rest of the plant does not. It's equally as important. Uh, but she has a brand that she's rolled out in California again because there's THC in it. It can't cross state lines. That you know is really focused on many nurses that work for her. That is focused on figuring out each human who might be sick and benefit from cannabis, figure out their system and then develop something that works for them you know, and be that detailed. Canna kids will be sold on, on shelves, you know, hopefully around the nation eventually. But in the meantime, you can actually go on the site, put in a request to speak with a nurse and have someone help you through the process and educate you not only on the product, but on the benefits. So what happens if you so want that, a product? So let's say you're, well, what if you're, okay, with can of kids, let's say you're, your kid or your child is taking this, you know, um, has access to the, to the um, cannabis. And, but then when you travel, you go across to another state, what happens? You can't take it with you or you can't take the medication or it's illegal if you get caught or how does that work? Yes, it's illegal if you get caught. If you're flying from Colorado to California, I believe, I've been told, I haven't read it myself anywhere, but I've been told that flying from a legal state to a legal state is just fine. You can carry your medicine or, you know, when it's recreation, I'm not sure. But yes, you can carry it from legal state to legal state. But no, and isn't that horrifically sad to think about being a parent where your child is having success with a plant and if you want to go to Disneyland in Florida or Disney World, you can't take your medicine with you. Or if you do, you risk actually going to jail. And to me, you know, I don't know. It's just, you know, there's this common sense thing of if it's working for someone, how can anyone argue that? How can they tell them no on the right to try or say, you know, you can't yet, or maybe we'll let you later. 
you know, it's, it's insulting to these mothers. Well, it's kind of a, it's insulting. It's also this kind of an insanity to it. What if you're going from legal state to legal state and you're flying, but then your plane has to land somewhere else because of bad weather. And so you're in a state that's not legal. I'm thinking of all of these scenarios and you could get put in jail as you, you know, land at the airport, but it's kind of, it's really. And uh, you know, there really isn't any laws, even in legal states, you know, that protect the parent that says you as a parent, um, let's say you have chronic pain, just your back, chronic pain, and you use cannabis instead of oxycodone, which I think is a good trade. And you should use cannabis over oxycodone. Um, if that, and and that, those are your decisions. You can walk around, you know, drugged up all day on your your pill or a little altered with your cannabis. Now, you're a parent that's taking that and child protection services come in. You have no protection for having that in your home with your child. You could very well be at risk. Now, there aren't states that are legal that are walking into homes and, and making any kind of claims like that. I haven't heard of anything. But it's still not protected in some of these uh, state laws. They're still not protected, and that's a scary thing. Yeah, we're kind of we are in a crazy. We're kind of in a crazy. I guess I hope it's just an interim kind of. We're going on to uh, you know better. Obviously, as we said, we only have a couple minutes left. Uh, better awareness, education, scientific research, and then being able to uh, all of us have access. I have it as a choice, yeah. uh, as you say, a choice. Back pain would be a good one. We've got all the <laughs> baby boomers. Any yeah. websites one can go to for that? And we mentioned can of kids for the kids, but what about for uh, for adults? Well, MPP, which is Marijuana Policy Project, is really a great site to go and get all of the information statewide. So you can see where each state is. You know, you'll find interesting facts there of you know, violent crimes in certain states, 85% of them go unsolved, but marijuana arrests are through the roof. You know, it's an easy, it's an easy arrest. Um, MPP will educate you on everything with the states, the laws, kind of the lobbying that's going on. Now, as far as one great place to have all of the information, there really isn't one. It's that new of a field. Um, okay, well- you can go online and learn about the different flowers and their medicinal benefits uh, on different sites that I hate plugging because I'm friends with many. <laughs> um, <laughs> but there are places that you can learn about whatever ailment you have and the benefits of cannabis, at least what's been studied. Because at the end of the day, you know, we're stumbling through this with very little scientific research on the entire plant. We've been only concerned with the THC that gets you high. Now we have this opportunity to really dig in as a nation and a community. And it's going to take all of us to push that through because the big farmer is going to try to buy it in the end. We'll be stuck in the same scenario we're stuck in today. Okay, well, that's a good, that's a, we have to end, we have 30 seconds left, and I think that's a good note to end on, so we've got to take responsibility for ourselves and make sure that doesn't happen, but uh, Stormy Simon, thanks so much for being on the show today, because it was very informative, so. Oh, Catherine, it was um, great to meet you, thanks yeah. for thinking of me, and anytime. Yeah. 
Great, thanks. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff, and management.